Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. Uh, It's so good to see all of your shining, happy faces uh, on this beautiful morning of mornings. Uh, Doesn't it feel like we're having like the best summer ever? I can uh, look with great dread upon whatever June, July, and August is going to be like in 2019. Um, We're continuing on with um, our our first series of the year. You know, the Lord has given us this really big vision for our community this year, together with one heart and mind, drawing closer to God. And within that larger vision, we kind of have these three beats that we're walking through. The first is learning the heartbeat of God. And so the past several weeks, we've been exploring this idea. Well, before we talk about how, how God speaks to us and how we learn to listen to him, what is he like? You know, because a lot of times... We talk about, you know, God speaking to us, and that's actually quite intimidating because we don't trust the speaker, right? I think, you know, sometimes we feel that. Think about in your own life, maybe with authority figures. or so. If you don't know somebody, if you don't know their heart, um, you, you automatically have your defenses up when they begin to speak. And so we feel like it's really important for us to take this time at the beginning of the year and just explore. But before we really lean into learning how to listen to the voice of God, what is God like? What's his heart? What's his desire? What's his character? And the more that we can lean into trusting God's character, then when we come to the moment where we're asking God to speak, we're much more ready uh, to listen to him. And so uh, we're going to be continuing on in that today. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you, and I want you to pray for me. Uh, you can pray out loud if you want, but, it, you know, my voice will be louder. I've got the microphone. And um, we're going to get right into what the Lord has for us today. Heavenly Father, uh, we testify the truth that you're here, that you're with us, that you're for us, you're not against us. And God, we're all at different experiences of that when we walk in. Lord, for some of us, we're just so, um, we're so saturated in your presence already when we walk in here. There's just this added bonus of what God's doing. There he is speaking right now. Do you hear him? <laughs> You know, it's like, and, and, God, and God was not in the mountain. He was not in the earthquake, but he was in the shining, sparkling lights. Keep your eyes closed. Keep your eyes. This is a sacred moment, okay? <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Uh, yeah, God, some of us, we're just, we're already, we're, we're there. We're in it. We, we feel it in every fiber of our bone. We're like Jacob, like we explored a few weeks ago, saying like, surely God is in this place. And I wasn't aware, but now I am. And God, a lot of us are coming into this place, and we're, we're honestly, we're pretty dry. Um, and maybe we're tired, and maybe we feel stretched thin. Um, as Tolkien says, like butter that's been scraped over too much bread. But wherever we're at, Lord, when we come into this place, we still, we come here with this expectation that we're going to encounter your heart. We're going to encounter your heart as revealed through Jesus, our Lord, our Savior our older brother, our friend. And God, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit even now to soften our hearts, to incline our ears, to hear you speaking, not just to us in general, not to us in philosophies and ideas, but in ways that actually meet our current experience, where we're at right now in our lives. And so may the words of my lips 
and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My uh, main passage of scripture today is going to be uh, very familiar to many of you. It's the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. But I actually want to commit a a minor heresy and read it to you out of the message today instead of the, the blessed NIV. I know, I know, I know. Landon? Just tallies, man. I, this is, I was like, I think the elders have said I've got three demerits per Sunday, right? Is that, the, is that the equation? I'm not sure. Per year. Oh, per year. Well, I'm going to use one of them right now. So um, a few, like, about a month and a half ago, our leadership were in prayer like, God, what do you want to say? How do you want to lead us into this place of understanding your heart? And actually the Beatitudes came up as one of the passages by which we can understand God's heart. And the power of it is this, you know, when we look at the Old Testament, this story, if we kind of take all of Scripture as this narrative of of the people of God slowly coming to understand what He's really like and His heart and desire for them, and then what He's calling them to be, we find this in the story of Israel being delivered from Egypt and then walking into the desert, and they bump into the side of a mountain. And they're so afraid of God because they're still learning what he's like. There's still an abused people who don't know their identity, who are still suffering the trauma of their past, and they, they bump into this mountain where God is supposed to live, and, and they're so intimidated, they actually send somebody else up on top of the mountain for them. It's Moses, and it's one of my, you know, my favorite scripture in the Old Testament. It says, and the people stood afar off, and Moses entered into the thick darkness where God was. And God goes, or Moses goes up onto the mountain to meet with God. God gives him the Ten Commandments, which are basically like God's rehabilitation plan for Israel to kind of give them back their identity, to lead them into trusting who he is, that he's good and he's for them. And that becomes kind of the foundation of the people of God in the Old Testament. And when we kind of follow into the story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, we're actually seeing Jesus walking the story of Israel out and redeeming it along each part of the way. If you read the first several chapters of Matthew, you see this playing out, that Israel kind of passed through the sea from the death and slavery of Egypt into the new life that was waiting for them on the other side. They walked through the desert for 40 years, and Jesus was back baptized in the Jordan, and then he enters into the desert for 40 days and, and, and struggles through a lot of the same temptations that Israel was struggling through. Is God really going to protect us? Is God really going to provide for us? Does God really empower us? All these questions that Israel is wrestling through, Jesus meets those temptations and comes out the other side. And then Jesus begins preaching. The very first sermon he preaches, very short, very to the point, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or we might say, change the way you think about everything because the reality of God is so close that you can touch it. Change all your assumptions about God. Throw them out the window because the the reality of God of what I'm going to show you is very different. And then in Matthew chapter 5, so everything from that point that Jesus says and does is, is kind of explaining what he means by repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And when we come to his first major sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it, we find another people at another mountain. But rather than being intimidated like their, their ancestors in the past, they're so eager to know what God is like. Because this is, a, this is an oppressed people. This is a people that live in the shadow of an empire. They're hungry. They're poor. They have something like an 80% tax rate on them. They're waiting for some sort of hope that God is going to deliver them and that God is going to speak to them and guide them into this newness of life, kind of this new promised land. And they're eager and they're waiting. And so they come up on this mountain 
waiting for Jesus to tell them, what is God actually like? And this is where Jesus chooses to begin that sermon. So if you want, I want you to encourage you, if you're more of an auditory listener, to close your eyes as I read um, the Beatitudes in the message version, or you can read alongside on the screen. But I'm hoping that this different translation kind of um, animates some of that language for you that maybe, like me, you've, you've grown up in the church, you're very familiar with certain translations, and sometimes it can kind of lose its power. But I want you to really listen. This is how Eugene Peterson uh, interprets the Beatitudes. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what's most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content just to be who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort, and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do, and all heaven applauds, and know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. What a fascinating way to begin a sermon. What a fascinating way to begin this conversation when the people are coming with expectation to say, what is God actually like? We know the scriptures. We know the prophets. We know the Psalms. But what is he really like? We need to experience him for ourselves. And I think this is why this is such a beautiful place to begin, that God is tender-hearted towards those he is especially fond of. This is the thing that I want you to walk away with, and it should come up on the screen in a moment. God is tender-hearted towards those he's especially fond of. Now, I could just stand up here and say, God is love, right? If, the, you know, if all of Scripture is this gradual learning of the real heart of God, we get to almost the end of the book in 1 John, and that's the big revelation. That's the big reveal to say God is love. God does a lot of stuff, and he says a lot of stuff, but he is love personified. But there's something interesting. We say God is love. And we say, well, why is God love? We say, well, because he has to. That's his character, Right? And this is how we kind of, we, we sanitize the love of God. We say God is love because he's obligated to love. He can't not love. 
But I came across this phrasing he's especially fond of a while ago in an interview with William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack. Landon, that would be my second minor heresy, talking about The Shack. And he said, this phrase, I'm especially fond of you, was one of the, the most positive reactions he got from that book. Not just to say, I love you, but I'm especially fond of you. And I think what's so powerful about it is we say, I love you, it's more about the subject, it's more about the lover and something about them. But when we say, I am specially fond of you, it kind of places the onus on the beloved. So it goes from speaking of just about the character of the person in almost a vacuum, I love you, well, because I have to love you, it doesn't really matter who you are, to saying, no, 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 I am especially fond of you. There's something about the way in which I love you that speaks to your worth. And he was also asked, you know, when in these conversations about who's your favorite child, he says, whichever one I'm thinking about in that moment. It's not an objective decision. You see, love is not objective. And too often we have these sterilized views of the love of God, that God loves us kind of because he has to. That's sort of his thing. It has very little to do with the way that we are because we've envisioned this idea of a perfect God. And if God is perfect, that means that God must be without emotion, that God must be purely objective and impersonal in order to be the kind of God that we can label as perfect. And before long, the impressions that we've received of God actually remove him so far from us that, yes, technically, maybe it sounds like he loves us, but we have no idea if he actually likes us. We have no idea how he really, genuinely feels about us to say, how does God feel about you? But to believe that God is tenderhearted towards those who he is especially fond of. I think oftentimes the standard of love that we hold ourselves to is a lot higher than the standard that we would hold God to. Just close your eyes for a moment. Who, think about people that you love, okay? Friends, family, coworkers. And there's probably some degree of love because you've been told to love because you're a Christian. But who are you especially fond of? Who comes to mind for you? When you think of someone that you, that you would stand in front of them and you say, I am especially fond of you. There's several moments in the Gospel of Matthew where it says Jesus looked out over the crowds and they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep. And it says he had compassion for them. And the Greek word is, is that his, he felt it in his gut. That's the kind of love that we're actually talking about. It's the love that you have for other people that you are especially fond of when you say, I can't not love you. There's something not just about me and my obligations and what I'm supposed to be, but there's something about who you are that I cannot help myself. I feel it in the deepest part of me, and it prompts me to action. It prompts me right up to get in like, the mess of your life to see you rescued and restored. This is the kind of love that we're talking about when we say God is love. Not this sterilized thing, but a God who is so stirred in his bowels that he can't help but be present in our stories, in our lives. Because God, being pure love, has a different standard for how he sees us and how he draws close to us. But the love of God is not objective. It's not sterile. 
It's not a math equation. It's not an obligation. It's an affection. It's a devotion that God has for us. It's this steadfast withness that becomes the very core of our understanding of who God really is. And there's this phrase that we find all through Scripture that I find absolutely fascinating. It says, God shows no favoritism. It's in the Old Testament, and it's in the New. And oftentimes we think about that when we're thinking about love, and we're trying to make love objective, and we say, well, there can't possibly be favoritism because some people are ranked higher and some people are ranked lower. That's just the way that the world works. But I think there's a fascinating way to see this truth that God shows no favoritism, and there are people that God is especially fond of, and that's what I want to lead us through um, as we're exploring. So here's kind of three examples from the New Testament of God showing no favoritism. The first is in Romans, and this is the famous line where Paul says, do you not know that it's God's kindness that draws you to repentance? And he speaks about how God came to call first the Jews and then the Gentiles, for God shows no favoritism. We say, ah, but well, are the Jews not the favorites? No, there was a precedence. There was a welcoming in the beginning for the Jewish people because they were to be the ambassadors for the rest of us, all of us goyim, all of us pagans, right? To, to welcome us into the reality of God. And so Jesus came, first of all, to call the Jews into account to say, hey, this is the job that you've been given to speak the truth of God's heart to the rest of the world and to bring in the Gentiles who are your brothers and sisters. And he says, for God does not show favoritism. In Acts 10, Peter has this vision from God. You know, he's being called to go and speak to the centurion's family, this Roman soldier. And God gives him this vision, and there's this blanket in front of him, and there's all sorts of unclean animals on it, shrimp and pigs and aardvarks and whatever else. And he says, ah, no, I know, God, I know you're testing me. I'm not supposed to eat these animals. They're unclean. I know the Torah. I know the rules. And three times God says, no, 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 take and eat anything you want. And Peter's like, no, no, I'm, I'm a good Jew. Like, you, you, you have priorities of food. And then he starts to realize what's really going on. He wakes up out of this vision, and he goes to this centurion, this Roman soldier's family, and he preaches to them the good news. And he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Before that vision, Peter thought, yeah, God kind of does. He likes, he likes Gentiles. He likes Romans. He just likes us Jews a little bit better. We see Peter, through that revelation from God, is saying, oh, I see. No, God has called my people especially to be the ambassadors of this kind of love and devotion that draws all people unto himself. And then finally in Ephesians, you can, no, leave it up. There we go. Um, finally in Ephesians, Paul is talking about these different kinds of relationships. In Ephesians 5 and 6, he talks about husbands and wives, parents and children and masters and slaves. And there's these two little bookend phrases that I think are so important to be able to interpret that scripture. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. And he begins to speak about those three arenas and how we love one another. At the end, he says, and there is no favoritism with him. God doesn't like husbands more than he likes wives. He doesn't like parents more than he likes children, and he doesn't like masters more than he likes slaves. And when we love the way that God loves, it's reconditioning us to take away all of those ranking systems that we normally assign to who maybe likes, or who maybe God likes a little bit more than others. And the question often comes up, well, who is blessed? And it's the same questions that we ask today that they were asking in Jesus' time when he began, sat down to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Because a lot of times, 
we project onto God our assumptions of who's blessed and who's cursed. Or maybe we could say who God likes and who God does not like very much. You know, it, it's almost overspoken about now, and I, I, you know, it, it's kind of almost boring to me to bring it up, but, you know, these kind of like hashtag blessed things that we see online. And what happens so often is that hashtag blessed, or when we're speaking about being blessed, you know, from stage or on our social media or whatever, what we're saying is God gave us stuff, right? Gave me a good job, gave me a good family, uh, gave me a cool car, whatever it is. And I'm not saying that God does not bless us with those things. I'm saying we oversimplify a lot of times. We're saying God blesses us with stuff and privilege and relationships and health. And what we're unsaying is God curses people who don't have stuff, who don't have privilege, who don't have uh, health and all of these things. And we've fallen into that same oversimplification of the world of who God blesses and who God does not. Can you imagine if we said, I just got fired from my job, hashtag blessed? Maybe you hated your job. I don't know. <laughs> my, my, my grandmother just died, hashtag blessed. You know, we oversimplify these kind of things. And this was the same thing that was going on in the day of Jesus when these people are coming to Jesus to know what God is really like. This is the world they lived in that their religious authorities were telling them the same thing. If you've got power and privilege and you've got stuff and you've got health, obviously God has blessed you. But if you're poor, if you don't have enough, if you're needy, well, obviously you've done something wrong. And we see this all throughout the story of Jesus. They come across a man who's been born blind since birth and his disciples go, Jesus, who, so who sinned, like him or his parents? Because obviously somebody did something wrong to be cursed by God, right? Maybe you're familiar with this story. And Jesus says, it's, he didn't sin and his parents didn't sin. This happened so the glory of God could be revealed through what I'm about to do. You see, it's this whole different paradigm for how we understand who's blessed, who's cursed, who God likes, who God does not like. And when we begin to get rid of our illusions of power and privilege and accumulating stuff and really begin to seek the heart of God, as we're going through these stories, we begin to realize that we can know God's heart by looking for those he draws close. Who are the people in the stories? Who are the people in our lives that God is especially fond of? Not just the people that God loves because he has to, but who are the people in the story of Jesus that something, he, he's, something happens at that gut level? That Jesus, as the full revelation of God, says, I can't help but be present there. I can't help but go, run to that person. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first major sermon, beginning with the Beatitudes, Jesus subverts everybody else's expectation of who God likes the best. And obviously, Jesus didn't go to seminary because if he had known, you start with a joke and then you kind of present your credentials of why you're awesome and everybody deserves to listen to you. And you kind of have these three points that begin with a P and you tell people how they can be hashtag blessed later on. If you just try hard enough, just pray hard enough, then God will give you the job you've always wanted, the husband or the wife you've always wanted, the power and the privilege and everything else. And that's what the gospel is, right? Just, you're, you're missing it. You're like, you're, you just need to work harder and then God will bless you. But he doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't stand up and give his credentials. He didn't say, just work really hard, and maybe you'll make it in this life. No, he affirms these people exactly where they're at in the moment. 
Jesus begins his very first sermon saying, you're okay. You're okay where you're at right now. And maybe you don't feel that. Maybe you don't believe that, but you're, you're okay. The first few Beatitudes that Jesus gives us are people who we could say are needy, people who are missing something. And it's strange that he would say, he would begin, especially here, that these are the people that are blessed. But these are the kinds of people that have no illusions of self-sufficiency. These are the people that do not maintain the illusion that I've gotten what I've gotten out of life because I deserved it or because I worked really hard. And if people would work as hard as me, then maybe they'd also be blessed. You know, that heresy that we have written into our culture that says God helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible anywhere. But we've internalized that idea. But these first few groups of people are blessed because they have no illusions that they've earned anything from God. The poor in spirit, those who are realizing a gross lack of something in their lives. Those who mourn, the people that at the gut level say, this isn't the way the world is supposed to be. Do you realize that we, so often we cannot mourn because we have this illusion of self-sufficiency? We cannot grieve the way the world is today because the world already works for us. Why would we want it to change? We're already healthy and happy and we've got everything that we need. But it's those who mourn that are blessed to say, this isn't the world that God envisioned. It's not working. It's not working for me and it's not working for the people around me. And God says, no, you are, you are blessed when you mourn because you're actually opened up to be able to envision a better world. Blessed are the meek. And it does not say weak, it says meek. Blessed are the meek who don't think it's about this like self-promotion idea. It's the meek are those who wait patiently for God to fulfill the promises that God has fulfilled because the meek also don't believe that they're the ones that can go out and just fix the world on their own terms. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Next week, we're going to be talking about Lent and about fasting and how we have an overabundance. We are so stuffed full in our culture that there is no place for God. All of those spaces inside of ourselves are just bunged up with stuff. Is it any wonder we can't hear him, that we don't hunger and thirst for him because we believe that we've got everything that we need? So Jesus begins by blessing all these people that have no illusions of self-sufficiency, that are missing something. There's a vacuum in their lives. There's an emptiness. He says, you're blessed because you are ready to meet God as he truly is. The God that you know is not a God that just props up this feeling that you're good and you're okay and everything's working out for you. This is a God who you're actually ready to meet as he's fully been waiting to show himself to you as. And the next several Beatitudes are, are the kinds of people that reflect the heart of God. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. He says, you know, he quotes from Hosea and he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It was never about going out and doing the right thing and checking off all the boxes and being a good religious person. It's about in some way choosing to demonstrate the, the true heart of God through thought and word and deed. He says, blessed are the merciful. Those who show mercy on others, those who have a special fondness for the people around them to help to provide for them. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, those kinds of people who are unclouded by evil and greed, those people that don't have that cloud of cynicism hanging over their heart that keeps them from God because they're the ones that are actually able to see him when he moves. And blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. Peacekeepers kind of keep the status quo the way it is today, but peacemakers actually stir up conflict in order to lead us into a deeper, true sense of peace, that we're not going to settle for the counterfeit stuff. We're going to believe in that shalom peace that God actually desires for us, togetherness, wholeness, that we have full and complete intimate relationship with God and with one another. And blessed are the persecuted, those who don't give in to the status quo, those who don't believe the voices around them that say, just maintain, just keep everything the way that it is because it's already working. But the people, because they're so faithful to God, that they're going to follow him wherever he goes and they're going to say and do whatever he asks of them, that yes, even there, because they're making people uncomfortable, they're going to receive some sort of a pushback. He says those people are blessed too, because guess what? If they're doing it right, they're going to be even deeper into the heart of the Father. Have you had those moments when you felt squeezed and pressured by the voices around you that tell you, no, 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 maintain. Just keep it as it is. And instead of giving into that, you have to come back to God. You have to say, remind me again. Remind me again of who I am. Remind me again of who you are. Oh, yeah. Okay. There it is. That's what faithfulness is. It's not a legalistic thing. It's not about stirring up trouble just so you can get people to persecute you. It's you're so dedicated to pursuing the heart of the Father that even when trouble comes, it just becomes more fuel to press you deeper into his heart. And so it's almost like at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is sitting here with these people, and he's saying, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what I'm really like, I want you to encounter these kinds of people. And he has a phrase for them, the least of these. He says, I want you to learn to be fully present to the least of these, the people that it's a lot easier to ignore. It's a lot easier just to hide from them and continue to maintain our hashtag blessed lives. He says, if you really want to know what God is like, begin to fully expose yourself to those kinds of people, the people that God is especially fond of. And we see this all throughout Scripture. For example, when God himself is giving Moses the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 10, this is what he says. He says, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality or favoritism and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt." So even woven into the foundation of Judaism in the Ten Commandments in the center of the Torah is this command, love the little guy, love the underdog, love the least of these, because when you love them, you're going to understand what my heart is really like and how I really see people, that my love is not objective. This isn't a merit-based society where if you work really hard, then you're going to get far in life. No, this is a society that's based on being opened up to my fondness, 
my tenderheartedness so that we can all grow together. And there's these three categories there, orphans and widows and foreigners. And I want to encourage you, I do not want us to move away from taking that literally. Right? Literal orphans, literal widows, literal foreigners. But there's also these three categories. We can read them as a spiritual condition. Who are the spiritual orphans among us? Those of us who have been abandoned. The ones who were not chosen. And because of being abandoned, we feel worthless. Who are the widows among us? Those of us who have lost dreams. Those of us where something in our lives that was painting for us this beautiful future died. And we were left wondering what tomorrow is going to bring. And because of those lost dreams, we feel disillusioned with life. We feel powerless. And who are the foreigners among us? Those of us who are wandering, who have been displaced. Those of us who do not have a home to call our own. And so we wander the world feeling lost and scared, not knowing where it is that we can find safety. It's an exercise in faith to love the people that God is especially fond of. Not just because we're obliged to it, but because when we love the underdogs, the least of these, the throwaway people, it opens something up within us to understand God's heart for all of us. And so we have this beautiful paradox. God shows no favoritism, but he has a special fondness for the least of these. And how do we understand that? That, that Jesus draws close the lowliest so that we can all enter his kingdom together. The scriptures tell us that God's heart is that no one should perish, that nobody gets left behind because we don't value them the way that we're supposed to. But God's heart is that all of us are rescued and redeemed and saved, that we're all given a home, that we're all given new dreams, that we're all given a spirit of acceptance, that the kingdom is not one where people are excluded because of their lack of working hard enough or their lack of merit. And the kingdom is also something that's not obtained by just working really hard and having all the right moves and all of the right skills and all of the right positions in life. No, the kingdom is only received by us stepping out in faith to receive God's heart for all of us. Jesus says this later on in the Gospel of Matthew. The Father has given me all these things to do and say. This is a unique father-son operation coming out of father and son intimacies and knowledge. No one knows the son the way the father does, nor the father the way the son does. But I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. And this is him speaking to the, the, the deepest part of your heart. This is him speaking to you. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me 
and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. What does that phrase do for you today? Is that not God's heart? My desire is that all of you today understand that God doesn't just love you because he has to, because that's his nature, but he is especially fond of you. When he thinks of you, you're his favorite. Or maybe to put it another way, he is well pleased in you. Before you've done anything, before you've said anything, before you've worked really hard to earn anything, he's already well pleased. But do you want to know his heart? Love those whom he loves. Seek them out. Who are the people in your life, around you, that maybe it doesn't feel like you love them, but he's asking you, step in, try it out. Love the people that I love and see if you don't walk away with a new revelation of my heart. And so I, I want to invite you to stand with me. And I've written for us a liturgy for tenderheartedness. As Cole so beautifully led us last week in realizing it is very easy for us to become hard-hearted when we talk about the character of God, when we talk about uh, listening to the voice of God. And the best posture that we can be in is to be tender-hearted, to be soft-hearted, to not give ourselves over to cynicism, but instead to be available for whatever he wants to speak. And so in this liturgy, we're going to spend some time confessing some of the things that maybe have kept us hard-hearted. They've kept us ignorant to seeing who God is especially fond of. And then we're going to intercede for those within our community and beyond the walls of this community. The ones who are blessed because they're missing something. The ones who are blessed because they are demonstrating in some way that God's true heart to the world. And so I'm going to lead us in prayer and there's going to be lines in italics for you guys to respond with. And I'm going to leave just a little bit of a moment after each uh, after each phrase for you to pray out of your heart. What's God stirring up within you right now? Can you turn that towards him in prayer? And so let's begin. I'll say this. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Let us confess. God, we have believed things about you. This is me. You guys respond with Lord have mercy. Sorry. It's the first one. We'll get it. God, we have believed things about you that have kept you at arm's length. We have held on to images of you that end up falling short. We have understood you love us but we find it hard to believe you also like us. 
We confess when unhealthy expectations have led us to hard-heartedness in our relationship with you and with others. Take our hard hearts and make them tender once more. We have judged our brothers and sisters in the human family by showing favoritism, unconsciously believing you like some people more than others. Teach us to see those who you are especially fond of as worthy of love. this is the part where I get to forgive you of your sins. Almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life, and all God's people said. And so now out of that soft-heartedness, out of that tender place of us receiving forgiveness for our, when we have fallen short, we now turn that outward and we begin to pray for our community and for the world around us. Let's intercede. For the orphans among us, those who have been abandoned and feel worthless. For the widows among us who have lost dreams of the future and feel disillusioned with life. For the foreigners among us who struggle to find their place in the world and feel lost and scared. For the poor in spirit, for those who mourn, for the meek, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For the merciful, for the pure in heart, for the peacemakers and for the persecuted. God, there's this beautiful interplay between us understanding and living into how you love us and like us and us stepping out by faith to love the people around us who you're calling us to love. And it's always this back and forth with you, God. The more that we love, the more we realize that we are loved. The more we realize how we are loved, the more it empowers us to love others. But it all starts, God, with a revelation of your tender heart towards us, that you love us and you like us, that you look down upon us, your face shines upon us, and you are especially fond of who you see. And so, God, as we continue on in worship, I pray that you will do whatever you need to do in this room. Speak to the deepest part of ourselves that needs that revelation of your fondness towards us so that we might go back out into this world and to love with abandon everyone that we encounter, drawing them deeper into the realities of your kingdom. We pray all of this through the strong and the blessed name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. 
To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.